Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is a podcast designed to help you lead your life enthusiastically today, tomorrow, and every other day. I am your host, Ron Kaiser, positive health psychologist and coach, also keynote and TEDx speaker, and author of the triple award-winning book, Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. As listeners to the podcasts know, um, my goal is always to bring you individuals who lead their own lives with enthusiasm and have different perspectives and directions on helping us to become the best version of ourselves, no matter what age we are. And today is really a special day because uh, this our guest today has lived his entire life with enthusiasm and is now helping others to do so. Uh, has an amazing story and has a TEDx talk that uh, really kind of brought tears to my eyes and helped me to set goals. And I am not exaggerating when I say I am thrilled to welcome Rob Dubin to the Rejuvenating with Ron, Dr. Ron Kaiser podcast. Now, Rob is a happiness expert, keynote speaker, author, and corporate trainer, but he took a rather circuitous route to get to that point. Uh, actually, by the time he was in his mid-20s, Rob was an award-winning filmmaker who owned his own company and traveled the world, camera in hand, doing work for numerous Fortune 500 companies. A near-death survival experience made international news and elicited a call from the President of the United States. Uh, and this prompted Rob to do a re-examination of life. And a couple of years after this experience, he and his wife sold their home and moved aboard a 40-foot sailboat. Um, I guess maybe the near-death experiences didn't end then with the original one because traveling the world in a 40-foot sailboat, um, for those of us who may have had, had some experiences locally in, in much milder waters, uh, might see this as a bit challenging too. But more importantly, they studied human happiness and fulfillment with people ranging from being billionaires to barefoot villagers in 100 countries, over 100 countries. Today, Rob is in a new career where he teaches people a recipe for happiness. For individuals, this translates to more fulfilling careers and a happier home life. And for corporations, it actually increases employee engagement, stems resignations, and transforms workplaces resulting in increases in the bottom lines as well as happiness. So you can see we've got a really special guest, unlike one we've had before. Rob, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. 
Well, thanks for having me, Ron. I'm a big believer in your mission of uh, helping people age well and age actively. And uh, I'm uh, a little few years behind you, but I uh, turned 70 this year and I really try and live my life not much different than I did in my 30s, trying to do uh, as many uh, the same active things that I've always done. And I think that's uh, what all of us can aspire to and you certainly set a great example for others in that uh, in that realm so thanks for having me my pleasure and i'm uh, grateful for the fact that you mentioned that you're doing a lot of the things that you did decades ago and uh that's really the goal to not look at reaching a a, a plateau and go downhill but to continue and keep learning and so on uh, but before we really get into that, um, you've had such an interesting life and careers. Can you tell us a little bit about your pre-near-death experience life? What were you doing then and how how'd you get to, in, into that role of having your own company and traveling the world in your 20s? Well, I was really, really lucky when I was in high school, I knew what I wanted to do. I had gotten into photography. I lived in Colorado and I started taking pictures in the mountains. And this was way back in the days of uh, little Kodak Instamatic cameras that were little point and shoot film cameras. And when I'd take a picture of these grand mountain scenes and then I'd get the film back, the mountain would be about a quarter inch tall in the frame. and all of the majesty and grandeur that I had seen wasn't there. So I started wanting to take better pictures so I could convey to other people how majestic our mountains were. So I got into photography and when all of my friends were applying to liberal arts colleges, I only applied to a couple of different photography schools and I just sort of made a beeline, a direct line from high school to film photography school. Then I converted into filmmaking and right after I got out of school, I started started my own little company making films. And I got I got some lucky breaks and I got in with a, a crew uh, doing a lot of adventure sports work. I was very adventurous myself, mountain climbing and backpacking and kayaking. And so I got in with a crew of people at ABC Sports doing sports documentaries on all these sports that I love to do and uh, went from there. and. Often on a weekend, you might find me on Sunday up skiing in the mountains at one of the ski areas. And then on Monday, I might be skiing with a camera in hand. And often I had much more enjoyment on Monday than I did on Sunday, because not only was I indulging my skiing passion, but I was indulging my passion for creativity and creating something special that would excite people when they watched it on TV. So I was always very, very passionate about what I did for a living. And I did films for the Travel Channel and for ESPN and lots of adventure sports things. And I did that for 20 years and I loved it for 19 and a half years. And when I stopped loving it, I stopped doing it. And that was not long after that uh, wilderness survival experience that you mentioned. And uh, so that was part of the, the uh, change in my thinking, I guess, was this wilderness survival experience. We were off on a backcountry ski trip and the weather changed dramatically and turned into a whiteout blizzard that prevented us from finding this cabin that we were headed for. And uh, we were out for five days and the search and rescue group gave up 
hope for finding us alive and the sheriff announced that uh, that we were missing presumed dead and they would recover our frozen bodies the next spring and then we actually got out of the mountains made contact with the rescuers and got out and uh so it was uh it was very traumatic for my family and friends who thought we had perished for us we never doubted that we would get out of the mountains but it uh, certainly we didn't know how much pain and struggle we would have doing that but eventually we got out and uh, and went on with our lives but i guess a little bit of that experience and then the the fact that is my filmmaking i some of it became a little rote for me and and not as creative and i didn't want to be making films where my heart wasn't a thousand percent poured into making great films so my wife and i uh, decided to do something different and at the age of 42 we sold our home and bought a sailboat and took off to go sail around the world wow that is something and while I still can't totally wrap my head around the idea of having a near-death experience and then deciding to travel the world and cross oceans in a 40-foot sailboat, um, what what kind of motivated it? I mean, I'm sure it wasn't like an overnight thought that you didn't like uh, or you were getting tired of the one career. Well, why don't we go sail around the world for 17 years, was it? Well, yeah, a couple of different uh, things I can unpack there. When I was quite young, maybe 15 or something, National Geographic had did a, a series of stories about a young boy who was maybe 17 or 18. He, so he was four or five years older than me, and he sailed around the world by himself, and Geographic followed him for a number of years. And that always sparked my imagination. And as I said, I grew up in the mountains of Colorado, so I knew nothing about sailing. But over time, my wife and I got more and more interested in sailing, and we started making a lot of sailing movies. And we worked with the sort of the America's Cup and some of these very high-end yacht races that are really the pastime of millionaires and billionaires. And we got to spend a lot of time with a number of these very wealthy people and their crews would deliver the yacht to the regatta and they would fly in in the private jet and then we would get to go out sailing with them. And as we were doing that, I noticed that some of them were very, very happy people and a whole bunch of them weren't very happy people and yet they had everything that we all think we want. And so I sort of became interested in this idea of what created human happiness and then we decided to go off on our sailing trip. And a few years later, I was sailing through third world or developing nations and being with people that lived in dirt floor shacks. And some of them were happy and some weren't. And the percentage wasn't radically different than the billionaires and millionaires that I had been with. So I really started be spending more and more time trying to understand what created human happiness. And I observed people in a hundred different countries. Since then, I've studied the science of human happiness, the positive psychology, and I've taken the course at Yale University. I've been able to speak on happiness at Harvard University. And so that became a big focus of mine. And I also spent a lot of time working with Tony Robbins over a 30-year period, and I visited with him in his home in Fiji, and I spoke with uh, to some of his groups there and in other places. And uh, one of the things I did when I wrote 
a, uh, a when I was taking one of Tony's courses, I wrote down that I felt the purpose of my life was to live my dreams and inspire other people to live their dreams. And I had done that with my films for many years, my films about sailing, and we made films about sailing around the world before we went. And over the next dozen years, I had hundreds of people out there that we met sailing say, oh, your films are inspired us to go do this as you're doing it. And I'm still doing the same thing. I'm still trying to live my dreams and inspire other people to live their dreams. And you referenced my my TEDx talk. It's only been out about three months, but it's had a quarter million views, which is really exciting. So a lot of people are seeing it. And it is all about inspiring people to get outside of their comfort zone and do the thing. Uh, and your response is quite typical. The most often asked question is, what about some, what's the worst storm you ever had? Or what about pirates? So when we mention this idea of sailing, most people come up with some fear-based question. And my answer is that, yes, we had bad storms. And in 17 years, we encountered only three really bad storms out of all 17 years that we sailed. And I say to people, whether you stay home and hide under the bed or whether you do something else, you will also have three, three or four storms in the next 17 years of your life. And so face your fears and, and do the thing. Do the thing that you're thinking about that scares you because all of the magic in life lies outside of our comfort zone. And if you don't do the thing, you miss out on all of that. And if you do do the thing, you're going to have the storms anyway in your life. But if you do that thing that is scaring you, but also exciting you, then in between the storms, you get to do things like swim with dolphins in the wild. You get to, you get to see the green flash. You get to be have that feeling of sailing across the ocean on a beautiful night passage, a moonlit night, and you look up and you see a billion stars. And then there's a, a meteor shower, and it's like the universe is putting on a fireworks show just for you, for an audience of one. And so I encourage people to do the thing, the thing that scares you but also excites you, because that's where all the magic in life really is. Oh. It uh, really makes a person want to uh, buy a little boat and do something or, or the equivalent of it. Whatever uh, your equivalent is, we all, most of the things that excite us in life lie on the other side of some kind of fear. And one of the things I talk about in my TED Talk is a strategy that we actually developed for how to overcome fear. And I won't describe it now, but if people are interested in that, they can go watch my TED Talk. If you go to YouTube and if you just search for my last name, Dubin, D-U-B-I-N, and the word happiness, the TED Talk will come up and uh, people can watch it and learn how we developed a strategy because we faced fear on the boat every single day. Every day was something new, whether even not necessarily a bad storm, but every day it involved something new, sailing to a new country, trying a new food or new language. And so over time, we developed a strategy to make it easier to accomplish big goals and to overcome that fear that usually lies between where we are and completing the goal. 
amazing, uh, but it also raises a question, a very practical question. You said uh, that, you know, you've studied billionaires, you've studied villagers and so on. Um, just from a practical standpoint, how do you walk into a village in a third world country and say, I want to study happiness or what, what how do you, you know, in, in other words, uh, is it something that you plan ahead, you schedule, you engage people, that somebody introduces you, just, uh, I know this may not be the, the key part of your message, but it's real curiosity in my mind. How did, how did you do what you did? Well, it's quite interesting because most of the people that speak on happiness or this science of positive psychology are PhD psychologists. And I'm one of the few who speaks on it who is not. But I have a different way that I learned about it. And most of the psychologists, they're studying one or two or three or 10 experiments that other psychologists did with undergraduates where they ask them questions and, you know, they they do what they do to to rate them and see if they can change people's happiness level. I had a quite different experience because we spent the, the other people that we were sailing with, the other cruisers, which was a quite a large group, because when you're sailing around the world where all the sailors are going to the same ports at the same time of year, because you're following the trade winds and you're staying out of the hurricane seasons. So you see the same people month after month, year after year, some in some cases for all 17 years, we were out cruising. And in my other life that I described making those films, I, I climbed big mountains in the Himalayas, I climbed Denali, the highest peak in North America, and I, say, I kayaked unexplored rivers. And in those kind of endeavors, like climbing a mountain, the metaphor is very simple. You know, you want to get to the summit of the mountain. And when I I set an aviation record. I'm a pilot, so I flew to all. I was the first person to fly a specific type of aircraft to all 50 or 48 states in the continental US. So the goal was very clear to get to all 48 states. When we were out sailing, the goal was to wake up every morning and say, what can I do today that's going to make me happy? None of us were trying to actually sail around the world or set any speed records or do anything specific other than literally we woke up every day and say, what's gonna make me happy? So I was saying that and all of the people that I was sailing with were waking up saying the same thing. So I started studying that group and that got me interested more. And then as we sailed to different countries, I learned sometimes there was a different word for happiness or contentment or joy. They would describe it differently in different languages. And uh, so that became something that intrigued me. And then I started using the same powers of observation that I had used to study myself and my sailing contemporaries. And I started using those powers of observation with the people we met and then learning what kind of questions to ask to, you know, what, what did they do for fun? What gave them joy in their lives? And in some cases, it's obviously the same things that we all want. You know, everybody wants their children to have a little bit happier and better life than they have and those kinds of things. And in other countries, cultures, it was quite different. So it was just uh, a fascinating way to enrich my knowledge that I was already experiencing in my own life. So what is the recipe for happiness? 
Well, I would say there are a number of things that uh, are quite universal. Good friendships being one of the probably the number one indicator of somebody who is happy is somebody who has some close personal friends. It doesn't need to be 50. In fact, it can't probably be 50 good friends, but three or four or five really good friends that you confide into, people that you cultivate the friendship over time. And, you know, there's two kinds of friends that we often have. Some of them are deal friends, people that you exchange things with, that, that you help them and they help you. And then there are real friends, people that you're not necessarily asking anything of you and being having good friends. The way to have good friends is to be a good friend. So cultivate some really good friendships in your life that you really mean a lot to you. That's number one. I would say number two is doing something that gives meaning and purpose to your life. And especially whether you're whether you're young or whether you're aging, really one of the reasons people get old very quickly when they retire is they if they stop having meaning and purpose in their life it really has an effect on them so for many of us work is what we spend a third of our lives doing so hopefully you're doing work that brings meaning and purpose to your life and when i speak in corporations i talk quite a bit about this because there's this new uh employee engagement has been dropping for a while and we have this new meme called quiet quitting where employees are kind of doing the minimum they can do to get by in their job and not get fired and it's at, and people are sometimes doing it so that they don't get burned out and there's one little healthy aspect of that if they put boundaries on not taking their email on the weekend and not taking you know phone calls out of work hours or whatever that's a little bit positive setting those boundaries but disengaging from your work if it's the thing that could give you meaning and purpose it ends up making you less happy so when i go into an organization i teach a number of strategies for how to be engaged in your job and when that happens the the employee is happier and profits go way up because when you're engaged and happy in your job you're much more productive but and the company is much more profitable so i talk quite a bit about that uh the kind of aristotle actually said uh, coined a term called eudaimonic happiness and we tend to, there's two types of happiness. One is called hedonic happiness, the same root word as hedonism, and the other is eudaimonic happiness. And we tend to focus, if I ask you what would make you happier, most people will answer with a bunch of hedonic happiness things. A new a vacation, a new car, winning the lottery, you know, 20% body fat, finding the perfect mate. And all of those things will make you happy, but generally for only a short period of time. You know, you think about that new car you wanted so badly, two years from now, it's just your car. But this thing that Aristotle talked about, eudaimonic happiness, is happiness that comes from adding meaning and purpose to our lives. And going back to what I talked about earlier, one way to add meaning and purpose to your life is through growth, doing things that force you to grow. And things that force you to grow or what we talked about earlier, stepping outside of your comfort zone. So if you be, face your fears, step outside of your comfort zone, you will inevitably grow. 
that will give more meaning and purpose to your life and you will have more happiness. That's another part of the recipe. And then one of the most easy, simplest things to do, I have everybody do it that I speak with, is start a gratitude practice and get some kind of journal. It can be on your iPad or your your or a written gratitude journal. But towards the end of every day, sit down and take five minutes. It only takes five minutes and write down five things that you're grateful for that happened that day. And it may only take you a minute to write five of them, but you have to spend five full minutes feeling the feeling of gratitude and why that thing makes you grateful. And just write that down. And if you do that every day for two months, it will change your life. Because what happens when you're doing that is you're releasing the happiness chemicals in your brain, dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin. And your brain, if you do it for two months, which is how long it takes us to create a habit in our lives, you will build neural pathways where your brain associates the feel, the good feeling you get when those chemicals are released. Your brain associates that good feeling with having written down the things and thought about them. And then over time, you will just do it automatically. And I can tell you, I spend 75% of my waking hours with gratitude being my main emotional state. Wonderful. And that makes me happy and contented almost all the time. Wonderful. And uh, the great thing about everything that you're suggesting is there doesn't appear to be an age limit on any of these things that you can do this as a young person, you can do it as an older person, that it it is such a wonderful exercise regardless of age. Absolutely. And the younger you start, the more you build up this, this gratitude habit. And I started doing it maybe 20 years ago. So now that's literally the main, like I say, that's my default setting to what I think about all day, every day is what am I grateful for right now? And when you write your gratitude journal, it can be little tiny things. My favorite song came on the radio while I was driving home. You know, you got a parking spot near the front door of the mall or your kid got an A in school. I mean, it can be little things or it can be big things. But it doesn't have to be a big thing. But what happens is when you're feeling gratitude, you can't also be feeling anxiety and worry and other negative emotions. You can't feel both of those emotions very easily at the same time. So and as you start to focus on what am I if just the thought process of what am I grateful for for today, it makes you recognize something good that happened today that you might not have noticed. And when you start looking for more good things, guess what? You see more good things. Great. The, uh, I mean, this has been so enlightening and so inspiring. I hate to ask this next question, but every once in a while, I turn on the news and I see there are wars going on in Ukraine and the Middle East. Uh, there's uh, violence in, in the cities, there uh, are political polarization. Uh, there's How do people who live in the real world, what, what are you supposed to do with that? Block that out, not watch the news? How do you deal with the fact that, uh, and, and I guess it, to, to, uh, to some extent, there are also realities in all of our 
personal lives. People may lose a job. There may be an illness in the family, uh, things of that nature. Um, how do you maintain the same level of happiness or do you when in your personal and uh, societal world, there's a lot, a lot of negative stuff? Well, the, you ask a very complex question, so I'll try and give a reasonable answer. I certainly watch the news every day, and I have the same response that you do to the terrible things, especially right now, that we're seeing. And I guess one response I do have is that I'm grateful that, that those things are not happening to me right now, but I can still be active in trying to do something so that it doesn't happen to anybody else. And I think we can do that and take action. You know, you asked about our um, survival experience. And when I was after the, I, my, that first call came from the president of the United States and the next day, the next few days, I was on all the nightly news programs and all the network morning shows. And most of them asked us how we had survived, what had we done physically to get by, we didn't have tents and enough sleeping bags, and how did we not freeze. But Katie Couric on the Today Show asked me why we had survived, why had we survived when others didn't. And I hadn't thought about it until she asked the question, but immediately the answer jumped into my head that we had survived because we were optimistic and we were resilient. And so when I said we didn't consider any other option other than that we were gonna get out of the mountains, no matter how bad it got, the fact that we froze for five days, the fact that my wife nearly had her feet amputated from it, did not dampen our, in, our optimism. And people say optimism, that's where you see the glasses half full instead of half empty. And I don't believe that's what it is. I think seeing it as half full when it's not half full is that's the toxic positivity that people talk about, you know, saying, you know, the world is beautiful, the world's beautiful, the world's beautiful. And if it's not beautiful, you know, that just doesn't work. So what I try and do is I see the glass as it really is. So on the third day or second, third day that we were out skiing, we were out five days, but after only two days, the sheriff came on TV and said our odds of survival were only 10%. So maybe for us, the glass was only 10% full. But what we focused on was that 10%. So what I tell people to do, and I tell, uh, when I speak to corporations about team engagement, I suggest look at the glass as it really is. You're rolling out a new product. You've got a new sales challenge. See the glass as it really is. Maybe it's only 20% full. So focus, acknowledge that 80% that's empty and acknowledge the problems that are ahead of you and talk about what you need to do to avoid and overcome those problems. But then however much time you spent on the problem, spend three times more time thinking about and talking about the solution. So focus on the 80%, acknowledge it, but then figure out what you can do with that 20% that you got working for you, the 20% of the positive thing. So that's the optimistic side. And that's how we can look at these world problems. And the other thing that allowed us to survive in the wilderness and allowed us to sail around the world and go through storms and still be willing to go out to sea the next week was resilience. And resilience, I believe, comes and resilience is what 
is the antidote to burnout for employees in organizations where people are getting so burned out in their company. Resilience is the antidote to that burnout. And you build resilience with three things. The ability to take action. It's when we think that there are no more actions that we can take to change our situation. That's when we get burned out. So figure out an action that you can take and then be flexible about whether that actually figure out the action you can take and then be present and mindful and see if your action is getting the result you want. If it's not, the third step is to be flexible and change your action. And if you keep doing that, eventually you will come up with an action that will have the result you want. And of course, we're looking at this Mideast problem right now and lots of countries and lots of years have gone by where we've tried different things, different actions, and we haven't found a solution yet, but we can't give up trying. We have to keep looking for a new action that we can do that will have the result that we want. And so that's how you remain resilient and you bounce back from your problems and you're able to go ahead, despite the fact that you recognize there are problems in the world. Thank you for that, Rob. Uh, so much wisdom. I'm really proud that we've been able to present you to our audience, Rob. Uh, unfortunately, there are some things in the world that uh, happen like time limits and we are running out of time. I could keep going for a good long time, but uh, I know this isn't the only place where people can find you. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you are, uh, both from the standpoint of people who may be interested in if you're in social media, do you have a website? Uh, there may be some people who are listening who are uh, corporate executives and may be in a position to check you out and book you, uh, just how, how do people find you and, and what do you have to, to offer the, the rest of the world be, besides being a guest on my podcast? Well, I'm excited to be on your podcast. Uh, people can find me at my website, which is just my name, Rob Dubin, R-O-B-D-U-B-I-N.com. That talks a little bit about what I do. I really love what I do, spreading this message of happiness to people. And I love helping organizations change their thinking and realizing how important it is to keep their employees happy. Uh, I'm doing a, a webinar in a few days for a company that's a $4 billion company with uh, 10,000 employees around the world. So I get to, to do a webinar for them on happiness. I'm really excited about that. And that's the kind of thing I do. I do uh, full day trainings on happiness. And for your listeners who might just be individuals looking for more happiness in their lives, I have a little ebook that they can download for free. Uh, if they text the word happier, H-A-P-P-I-E-R, happier to 33777, they'll be able to download a, a workbook that has some of the ideas we've talked about here. And uh, then my TED talk also talks about some of the things we've uh, covered here, and they can find that on YouTube. Great, great. And we will have all this information in the show notes. Um, and I know I'm going to re-listen to this podcast a few times because, again, so much wisdom in it. Rob, I can't tell you how grateful I am. I was looking forward to our conversation. Uh, passed too quickly. I know we've got more to say, so we 
can't guarantee you that I won't be getting back to you and seeing if you can share more with us. But I'd love to come back another time. And I really love your mission of, of inspiring young people to live well and inspiring older people to live well. Well, there's certainly no better role model to provide inspiration than you, Rob. And uh, although I don't know her, uh, please give your wife my best because I know the two of you have been in this together. And, uh, you know, it's it's been a certainly a journey that's unlike any other couple in the world and uh, one that that has had such a great positive result and impact on others. Well, thank you. My wife, we've been married 41 years and she inspires me every single day. That's wonderful that you can say that. We share something in common aside from our, our interest in happiness and positive psychology. And so that brings uh, to the close another episode of Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser podcast. We've been really thrilled to be able to have our guest, Rob Dubin, share so much information with us. I encourage you to look at the show notes, uh, see where you can find Rob. And uh, if you're in a position to learn more from him through your organization or company, it will be worth it. In the meantime, it's, uh, you know, we're still in the real world where there are diseases, problems, issues like that. So everybody, you know, focus on what you can control, stay positive, stay safe, and be back next week when we'll have another interesting guest. Although, and I know I've said this before, but this will be a hard one to top. Take care and we'll see you.